And please open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter will, will continue to teach us <clears throat> about humility, but with a change of perspective. Last week, the perspective or the, the relation that was in view was humility towards one another. And this morning, as well as in following sermons, subsequent sermons, the relation and the perspective is humility towards God. Humility towards one another, we've looked at that last week. This week and moving forward, it will be humility toward God. Let's read 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7, beginning in the middle of verse 5, where it says, clothe yourselves. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Give me a moment to introduce this sermon and then we'll get into our outline. Last week when we talked about clothing ourselves with humility towards one another, I briefly mentioned that this has a Godward humility in view also because Peter reinforces the command to be humble towards one another with a Godward humility. He says, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why should we be humble towards one another? Because we must be humble towards God. God opposes the proud. And here Peter is quoting from Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34, which says, toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. So our humility towards one another actually has a preceding foundation, which is our humility towards God. And if we're not humble towards one another, we need to understand that God will oppose us rather than helping us, which is something that Peter has taught elsewhere already uh, when he talked about prayers being hindered by not loving and caring for our wives as well as talking about oppression of others elsewhere in 1 Peter. So this idea of the necessity to be humble towards one another, being built on a preceding necessity of being humble towards God, is a theme that's been in Peter's epistle previous to this. But this necessity of Godward humility leads to verse 6, and a therefore. Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, therefore, verse 6 Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. A God word, humility. It is necessary. And notice that we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. What does that mean? Well, I'll explain it in a moment, but to explain it is really to launch into this sermon and subsequent sermons. As I began to, pray this, to prepare the sermon, it quickly grew and grew. The fish multiplied, the bread multiplied, 
uh, and it will be at least three sermons uh, based on these verses, likely more. Uh, and I want to state quite clearly that I'm once again drawing from a very helpful book that I have mentioned in sermons before. Pastor College actually taught through it in Sunday school, and that book is called The Crook in the Lot by Thomas Boston. Uh, a very good book, one of those desert island books you must have with you and you must read at some point in your Christian life. So just, I'm acknowledging at the outset that in this sermon and, and following sermons, I'm relying quite a lot on that book. What about our outline? We've seen that we need to have a, a horizontal humility towards one another that's founded in a, in a vertical Godward humility. How can we structure the sermon? Well, point one is this. God's mighty hand in afflictions. God's mighty hand in afflictions. And this will have seven subpoints. And point two will be in the next sermon. <laughs> That's the way this, this is going to work out. That as the outline expanded and expanded, it became clear point one is just the first sermon. And so, in a way, it's the heading of the sermon or the title of the sermon, but it's very intentionally connected to subsequent teaching and subsequent sermons. This sermon is focused on God's mighty hand in afflictions, and the seven subpoints will fill out the sermon, but later sermons will continue the larger outline. Before we get into these seven points, what is God's mighty hand? Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. God's mighty hand refers to afflictions, things that we must endure or suffer or experience. God's mighty hand. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. And so therefore, these seven points develop God's mighty hand in afflictions. Point number one. God's decree includes and his sovereignty reaches to afflictions. God's decree includes and his sovereignty reaches to afflictions. Notice that this is God's mighty hand. We humble ourselves under God's mighty hand and we must understand that the scriptures teach here and elsewhere, that the afflictions that we experience in this life are part of God's decree and they take place under his sovereignty that guides all things according to the counsel of his will. The afflictions of this life do not surprise God and they're not contingencies that an angel is reporting to God saying, uh, God, by the way, this is happening. And he says, oh no, I, I didn't know about that. What, what are we going to do? Afflictions are not rogue events, they're not unforeseen, and they're not unaccounted for by God. In fact, there is nothing that happens in the universe that is not a part of God's decree, and that includes sin and suffering. Amos chapter 3 and verse 6 says, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things according to the counsel 
of his will. So God's decree, which decrees all things, and his sovereignty that guides all things to the ends for which he decreed them, it includes and reaches to afflictions, even sin and suffering. Now that may sound like a startling statement. God decrees sin? What are you saying? God decrees suffering? How can that be? Well, yes, he does, but in a way that must be carefully defined and distinguished, and that's why we have so many subpoints. Secondly, God sends or permits afflictions. This is a, a distinction. God sends, that's one way in which God's decree relates to afflictions, or God permits, that's a different way in which God's decree relates to afflictions. God sends or permits. The wording I chose in the first point was intentional. God's decree includes afflictions, sin and suffering. Well, in what ways are sin and suffering or afflictions included in God's decree? There are some things that God sends. God sent the disaster that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. In the days of Elijah, God sent the famine to Israel, and he removed it. God sent those things. In distinction from that, there are other things, such as sin, that God permits to happen. God decrees sin not in the sense of causing it or creating it or condoning it, as Psalm 5.4 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. God does not decree sin by causing it or creating it or condoning it. But rather, God decrees sin in the sense of permitting sinners to sin. And I'll explain that further. There are some afflictions, going back to the first part, that are sent by God. But when it comes to sin... God does not send sin. It only takes place by God's permission. And now let me explain to you what it means that God permits sin. God's permission of sin does not mean that he approves of the action. Yes, you may do this. That is not God's permission. In fact, God's word explicitly forbids sin. God's permission of sin means that he does not prevent it from happening. And God is not obligated to prevent evil. God is not obligated to prevent all possible sin. Why is that? If we said that God was obligated to prevent all possible sin, how would he do that? He would have to supply to fallen man the common grace that man needs to restrain himself from sinning. When God prevents sin, he gives to a sinner the common grace that he needs to restrain himself from sinning. And God gives a common grace to mankind that does restrain his sin. Why is it that as bad as the crime rate may be in different parts of the world or, or even our own, why is it that not everyone is trying to get you or get your things. Well, it's because God's common grace restrains their sin and prevents them from giving in as fully as they might to the depravity of their nature. If God were obligated to prevent all sin, 
then God would be obligated to give the fullness of common grace to every sinner, to give every possible good to every sinner, which he is not obligated to give. God is not obligated to give every possible good to his creatures. Therefore, he is not obligated to give the common grace necessary for a sinner to restrain himself from sinning. Therefore, God is not obligated to prevent all possible evil or sin. And when God does not give the common grace necessary for a sinner to restrain himself from sinning, that is what we mean when we say that God permits sin. He lets the sinner sin. He does not prevent the sinner from doing what the sinner wants to do according to the sinner's own sinful desires. God doesn't put the thought into their hearts. God does not move them to act. They do what they want to do because they want to do it. And God allows them to run the course of their nature. Jeremiah 32, 35 says this, They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. God looks at the slaying of, of Judah's own children by offering them to Moloch in fire, and he says, they wanted to do this. This wickedness came from their own sinful hearts and minds that wanted to do such abominable things. I didn't command them to do that. I didn't put the thought in their hearts. They wanted to do this, and they are guilty for it. So when it comes to affliction, some things God sends. But when it comes to sin, God permits sin, not in the sense of condoning it or creating it or causing it, but rather by denying to man the common grace that man needs to restrain himself from sin. Does God owe any grace to sinners fallen? None at all. He restrains a lot more evil than you understand. Now, there's much more that could be said under this point, and if you'd like to read more or listen to more on it, I can point you to some resources, but this is an important doctrine to understand and perhaps to clarify because there are many who hear the words, who hear words like Calvinism or predestination or related terms, and they think that it makes God a moral monster as though he were the author of sin and the one who causes and commits sin in and through creatures, which is not the truth. And there have been many who, who are misguided and in the name of Calvinism or sovereignty have basically granted those arguments and insisted that others must believe them because, so they say, that's what the Bible teaches. And they raise their voices and say, who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? But persuasion should come through that which is convincing, not that which is intimidating. And this sort of, well, no, God is sovereign, and so he does work all these things. He does work in and through them. It's merely one more symptom of a reductionistic and immature perspective of what Reformed theology is and what it teaches. For our purposes, what we need to understand is that the mighty hand of God sends afflictions and permits sin. And we're going to say more about this as we proceed. In what way does the decree of God include afflictions? God sends some afflictions. God permits others. Thirdly, there are afflictions that are grievous but sinless. Verses 
There are afflictions that are grievous or painful, but sinless. Of those things that God sends, of those afflictions that God sends, some of them are not sins that are committed against us, but they are afflictions that are grievous and painful. They're not unholy. They're not sinful. We might say that they are defects, but not defilements. What do I mean? For example, if someone were blind, their blindness is not a sin in them. You wouldn't say, repent of your blindness. Their blindness is not a sin, nor is a sin being done unto them. They're not suffering sin. They're not doing sin. There's neither action or passion of sin here. But their blindness is a grief that they must bear. It is a defect, but it's not a defilement. It is a sadness and a grief that they must endure, but it's, it's sinless. Similarly, a, a barren woman. She's not sinning in any way, nor is she suffering the sin of another, and yet she is enduring something that is grievous. To be poor is no sin, but it can be an affliction which one must endure. And so in in the case of the blind person or the barren woman or the one who has poverty, there's no guilt involved, and yet there is grief involved. So the mighty hand of God sends afflictions that are not sinful, but they are painful to the one who suffers and endures them. They're defects, but not defilements. Fourthly, there are afflictions that are grievous and sinful. These would be the sins that God permits, again, by not restraining such a person from doing what they want to do by letting them run the course of their own nature and doing what they desire. And we can call these afflictions sins in the sense that they have victims. Or we can call these sins afflictions to others in the sense that they have victims. These are afflictions which we suffer when others sin against us or when we suffer the effects or the consequences of someone else's sin. Many of these afflictions that we suffer at the hands of others are therefore not just sins, fundamentally they are, but in addition to that, they're often crimes. For example, violence, or murder, or rape, or theft, or more of of a similar nature. These are sins fundamentally, but they're also crimes because they have victims. Someone is suffering the violence or the theft of another person, and so for the victim, It is an affliction that they suffer because another has sinned against them. And these sins, as we said before, come from the depraved mind of fallen man, from the sinful actions of fallen man. God is not the author or the cause of these sins. And they are grievous unto the victim, and they are sinful on the part of the one who performs those sins. Which brings us fifthly, to this point, namely, that the same event can apply to different people in different ways. The same event can apply to different people in different ways. It's important to realize that, some, that though some afflictions are sins, it is not a sin to be sinned against. It's a sin to rob someone, but it's not a sin to be robbed. That's easy to understand. 
But anyone whose home or vehicle has been broken into will tell you that not only do they end up suffering the loss of their goods, but they also suffer a sense of betrayal and invasion, which lingers for quite a while. Now there are other sins of a more grievous nature, which sadly some of you may have suffered, especially sexual abuse, where the victims of these sins feel as though they too have committed the sin. And though it is true that they have suffered an affliction by being sinned against, they do not have to suffer any guilt for what was done to them. They are innocent, though they still have suffered a grievous affliction. So in one event, the one who commits these acts should suffer the consequences by being put in prison or an equivalent penalty, and they suffer the affliction of their own sin along with bearing their guilt. The one who perpetrates, the one who commits the crime and, and performs the sin. But the victim, while also suffering the affliction of the sin of another, remains pure and innocent of the guilt. And though they may struggle to release themselves from feelings of shame, the liberating truth is that in God's eyes, they are as pure and innocent as though it had never happened because they are blameless. Are they suffering an affliction? Yes, an excessively grievous one. But they suffer no guilt whatsoever. And so we have the one who commits the sin, and we use the word suffer, they suffer the consequences, not in the sense of, oh, poor them, they must suffer. No, there's no pity here for them. But they do suffer consequences afterwards, or they should. But for the victim, there is a a beautiful freedom of knowing that what was done unto me, the guilt and the shame of it is for that person and not for me. And the Lord knows and the Lord's eyes see that I am pure and innocent and blameless. And though they have done what is shameful unto me, I am not ashamed because I am innocent. Now, do they suffer the grief of what has happened? Yes. And do many carry that grief with them for years and years and years? Yes. But there is liberation and freedom in knowing there is no guilt. There is no shame. The Lord loves you. The Lord loves you. That can be a difficult thing for a victim to accept. But it's the truth. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth. Moving forward, number six. Do not blame God for afflictions of your own making. If we are to humble ourselves beneath the mighty hand of God, then we need to understand that God sends or permits afflictions And we need to humble ourselves under those afflictions. But we must not use this doctrine to evade what is rightly placed upon ourselves, namely blame, if not guilt, for lack of wisdom or sin. For example... We've said that bodily defects and sicknesses as well as poverty are afflictions but not sins. However, 
if you live an unhealthy lifestyle and then you suffer the bodily consequences of your own unhealthy lifestyle, don't play the victim. Don't console yourself by thinking God has sent you this affliction and you must bear it. No, you need to start eating differently and probably go to the gym. You need to take your medications and obey your doctor. But you shouldn't say, oh, I must humbly submit myself to this affliction that God has sent. He didn't send anything in this case. What he's actually done is permit you to be foolish and sinful, and you need to repent of that. Not, this is not a cross for you to bear. This is a hole that you have dug. And you shouldn't attribute to God's decree and sovereignty something that you must humbly and patiently endure when the reality is that you need to get out of the hole that you dug for yourself. And we should not blame God for afflictions or attribute to God afflictions of our own making. You're not a victim here. And you shouldn't use God's decree and sovereignty to console yourself and, I need, I need prayer as I endure this. No, you need an exercise regimen and a better diet. Bad news for America. The same applies to your financial situation. If you've worked hard and been responsible, and yet you are in need of financial assistance despite diligence and care, or if your investments or business ventures have failed despite great efforts to see them succeed, then one must be content to wait on the Lord and trust him for his provision. The Lord can bless a little and blast a great deal. That's true. And if the Lord wills, James says, we will make a profit. But if you choose to buy things you can't afford, and if you choose to incur significant debt, and if you spend or waste money on luxuries only to find you have nothing left, or you are, you are in debt, don't think of yourself as a victim suffering poverty. You're not. You're not a martyr. You're not a victim. You're a fool. And you need to be wise and be responsible. You need to learn, exercise, or to, you need to, learn to exercise self-control and to prioritize. And you need to face the consequences of your own choices. While it's true that God's mighty hand governs even these things that you're doing, you shouldn't attribute them to God as though he has sent these afflictions to you. You need to attribute them to yourself and say, he has permitted me to do this, to show me my own sin, and I need to repent of it. I have created this problem, and God has permitted me to do so for his own wise ends, to teach me. And this is not a cross which I must bear with holy patience. This is a, a pit which I have dug with my own shovel, with every, how deep is this hole? It is only as deep as every single one of my shovelings, whatever the word would be for that. Instances of digging. The depth of the hole is directly proportional to the number of times you sank the spade into the earth. And so that is what you must undo of your own volition. So we must be careful here not to misuse the doctrine of God's sovereignty in our afflictions by attributing unto God what rightly is ours. And we need to bear the blame of our own unwise or sinful choices and do what is necessary to overcome these things. Another way of putting it is don't become inactive just because God is sovereign over afflictions. No, we need to take medicine. We need to use the means that are provided. We need to work hard. We need to be careful and self-controlled. 
there's a reason that our illness list on our prayer meeting list includes certain things and excludes others. We don't have a list of people who were just lack self-control because that's not an illness. It's not a sickness that needs prayer. If anything, it just needs repentance. But then there are others who are indeed suffering afflictions sent by God, who do need prayer that God would take it away or that he would give them patience to endure it humbly as they humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. If God permits us to go our own way, it's still our own fault for going our own way. Seventhly and lastly, God bounds and guides what he sends or permits. God bounds or limits and guides or directs what he sends or permits. God's mighty hand brings afflictions our way, either by sending sinless afflictions or by permitting the sinful actions of others which are done against ourselves. But why does God do this? Wouldn't it be more pleasant and easy if such things were removed from our lives? Well, in the next sermon, we will look specifically at God's purposes in afflictions. Why does the mighty hand of God send or permit afflictions in our lives? That's the next point in the sermon. What are God's purposes? So for now, what I want to do is to conclude by thinking more broadly about God's mighty hand in affliction, that it is God's mighty hand in affliction. Peter commands us to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. And as we do this, it does not mean that, we, that humbling ourselves is a sullen silence. It's not shutting up. Humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand is not shutting up. Rather, it's patiently trusting. And we can patiently trust when we remember that it's God's mighty hand that is bounding and guiding all that which he sends or permits by way of affliction in our lives with a divine and sovereign purpose. And we need to trust that his hand is a mighty hand that is able to bound and able to guide and able to lead all that which he sends or permits all the way to the ends for which he permitted them. His hand is a mighty hand, brothers and sisters. His hands are not full with the complexities and perplexities of life. We struggle to manage our affairs. We say, my hands are full. God's mighty hand is not full. His mighty hand is able and powerful to bound and limit and guide everything. Have you ever driven a car with a spare tire or with other troubles and yet you got where you needed to go? You, the driver, were not the cause of the deficiency in the vehicle and yet you were able to overcome it and arrive at your destination. We are spare tires. We are broken vehicles, but God is the driver who's able to get there with us. If you ride a horse that has a weak leg, you can still Get that horse to, to the destination because you have the bridle and the bit. You are able to guide the horse all the way. And so also God's mighty hand is able to guide and lead and bound all that which he permits to the ends for which he permitted them. 
He's the master helmsman of the ship of time, and he sets the course of all things according to the counsel of his own will. So know this, if God has sent affliction to you, sickness or loss or grief, it has a limit which it cannot exceed. It has a boundary which it cannot cross, and it has a purpose unto which it will lead. And if God has permitted sin to be committed against you, then you need to know this also, that he sees, that he knows, that he has set the limit, that he has set the boundary, that he has set the course, and not only that, but also this, he will avenge. He will repay. He will vindicate. He will smite those who smite his people. He will strike those who strike his children. We need to know it is God's mighty hand. You may think that the mighty hand is a threat to you. It's not. The mighty hand is not a threat. It's God's mighty hand. You better shut up. No, it's God's mighty hand is bounding and guiding and leading and limiting and directing. So trust it. Don't fear the mighty hand of God. Trust the mighty hand of God. And not only can we set our hearts on his power and his providence, which limits and leads and bounds and guides and directs all afflictions, we can also bring to mind and we must bring to mind and remember the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you to do something that perhaps may make you feel uncomfortable as a Protestant. I want you to imagine Jesus Christ on the cross. I want you to picture him in your mind. The danger is not in imagining Jesus on the cross as a man. The danger is in imagining him as a particular man. He was a, a Jewish man. Nothing identifiable, not some particular face that you know. Just a man. Imagine a Jewish man nailed to a cross and you are imagining Jesus. And we do not sin or stray when we think of the man that is Jesus. So imagine him. Picture Jesus on the cross. Think of a Jewish man nailed to a cross and what do you see? You see nudity and exposure. You see shame. You see a panting, struggling body. You see bleeding hands and feet. You see a bloodied brow as thorns are pressed into it. You see a bruised face from being punched and struck and a beard likely pulled and ruined. If you could see his back, you would see ribbons of flesh and blood. You see a sign in three languages declaring that he is king of the Jews. You see a crowd of people. A few are weeping and many are mocking. You see the king of Israel surrounded by his enemies, visible and invisible. Look, and what do you see? You see great affliction sent upon him. And you see great sin permitted against him. But look twice. Look with the eye of faith, and what do you see? You see not just a man. You see not just a Jewish man. You see God in the flesh. You see innocence. You see spotlessness. You see blamelessness. You see obedience. You see submission. 
because he is not there because others have forced him to be there, but because he has not stopped them. He is the one who has permitted these sins against himself, and he is not on that cross because he is helpless and overpowered. He is on that cross because he is overpowering the Jews and the Romans and the forces of darkness. Look at Jesus on the cross and what do you see? If you look once, you see a man suffering affliction and sin at the hands of others, but look twice and you see a flood of wickedness being bounded and guided and steered and stopped precisely where he wills it. Look once and you see a man confined and condemned. Look twice, and you see the mighty hand of God defeating, disarming, undoing, and overcoming the tides of sin that sweep over the face of the earth. Brothers and sisters, if God can do this, can he not also bound and guide and lead and limit the afflictions and the sins that he sends or permits in your life for good and holy ends, for his glory, for your good, for the glory of his name and the good of his people. You see, we do not simply trust with an abstract abstract trust in the possibility of a thing. We trust with a concrete trust in the reality of the thing, the reality of the cross, where we don't see a victim, we see a victor. Where we don't see a captive, we see a conqueror. And brothers and sisters, when you can see that, and say that in your own life, you are humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. God can and will bound and guide this affliction in my life for his glory and my good. That is to humble ourselves under his mighty hand. And as I have seen him do so in Jesus Christ for me and my salvation, so I believe that this is for me and my sanctification. As I see him in Christ bringing glory to his own name, conquering his enemies, so I know in my life he can bring glory to his name and conquer my enemies. And so I trust that he will bound and guide and limit and lead the afflictions that he sends and the sin that he permits in my life. Well, in Next sermon, we'll ask the question, what are God's purposes in sending and permitting afflictions in my life? And we'll have more to follow after that. But in conclusion, remember this. What sorrows God permits or sends have wise and providential ends. All crosses, losses, crooks, and bends, his never-failing mercy mends. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you that we need not fear your mighty hand, but rather we trust your mighty hand. If you clothe the lilies and feed the ravens, then we know that you also care for us, we who are of much more value than they. And so we ask you to help us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand, not cowering in silence, 
but waiting with patience and trust and confidence. We pray that you would also help us not to become inactive. Help us also not to attribute to you what is truly our own fault. We pray that you would cause us to be diligent, to be vigilant, to be careful and cautious. We pray that you would give us joy and peace in humbly submitting to your mighty hand. And we pray that you would help us to be an example to others as we submit to your holy will. Help us to be like Jesus Christ, not captives but conquerors, not victims but victors. Help us, we ask, in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.